This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Yeah, it's August of 2021. What better time to hold the 2020 Olympics? Yeah, I realize a little thing called COVID-19 got in the way. But I, I have to say that uh, personally, I'm having a really hard time being engaged by the Olympics. I've seen none of it this year, and usually I pay some attention to this. I don't know about you, my dear listener, but I, I just find it so discouraging to pick up the paper and see a headline. Time for the U.S. women's soccer team to get younger. Analysis, one to nothing loss to Canada shows a team that's past its prime. Well, I, I guess the most important thing, of course, is that you win gold medals, Right. Rather than, you know, enjoy the efforts of your national team. What are we, back in the days of the USSR and East Germany? Giving their, their poor women's swimming team male steroids to make them swim faster? I, I don't know. I've always been very disturbed by the medal count. It's, it, the Olympics are supposed to be this invigoration of ancient Greek ideals of people going out there and competing. And you know, I guess when the Greeks had their Olympics, people would put down their weapons Two city-states at war would, would call a truce so they could go participate in the Olympic Games. It's not supposed to be political. Of course, I, I am aware of the fact that although it's not supposed to be political, it, as time went on, it became more political. My understanding is that the Emperor Nero, when, when Rome controlled Greece, at one point demanded that he be allowed to enter the Olympics as a chariot driver. And wouldn't you know it, my understanding is that even though he fell out of the chariot during the competition, the judges nevertheless awarded him first place. Well, just remember, you don't win silver, you lose gold. Yes. Does anybody remember that horrifying, was it a Nike ad of 20 years ago? I believe it was Nike, yes. Disgusting. And of course, if you stare down at this medal total, as I'm doing right now, you see the United States, you see China, then you see the Nation of Rock, ROC. Oh, no, wait, that's the Russian Olympic Committee. So even though Russia's been banned from the Games for all of its cheating with steroids and performance-enhancing drugs, Russian athletes are still competing. How does, how does this work? Sounding off on this, The Economist noted last month that the 2020 Games will be unusual It'll be the first summer game since 1984, which were boycotted by the Soviet Union. Well, these are the first ones at which Russia will not be present officially. But yes, some of its athletes participate as individuals under the flag of the Russian Olympic Committee. Why don't all the nations compete as individuals under the flags of their Olympic Committee? When they started commercializing the um, Olympics in the 80s, when I guess when they were in Los Angeles, they decided they wanted to get a lot of commercial sponsors and, and not, not cost the host country so much. And of course, the advertisers wanted to see their products associated with gold medals, because that shows that you're a winner, right? Just as the Soviet Union spent a lot of time and effort cultivating what were obviously professional athletes to compete in the Olympics. That's all they did. And the International Olympic Committee famously refused to recognize the fact that the Soviet bloc countries were putting up true professionals. Because in their mind, if they weren't, if they weren't being paid directly, well, they were still amateurs. But there's ways you can pay your athletes besides cash. You can give them, you know, cars. You can give them, like, nice apartments. You can give them things that are really hard to come by back then in the Eastern Bloc. Here's a line from the Economist piece. No one knows how many athletes still dope 
but a glance at the headlines suggests it's far from rare. In 2019, Nike, a sportswear company, closed down its much-publicized Oregon project, a training camp for elite runners, after Alberto Salazar, the head coach, was given a four-year ban for doping. The magazine notes that between 2011 and 2015, and possibly for longer, Russia systematically doped hundreds of athletes. It roped in its spy agencies to subvert the anti-doping tests overseen by the World Anti-Doping Association, then fabricated data as part of an attempt to get back into the authorities' good books. And because I've paid no attention to this, I don't know what the latest status is on those high-tech swimsuits they were using a couple years ago. I guess I've seen pictures of guys in the water without them, so I guess, I guess they've given them a pass currently. But they had these imitation shark skin suits that would make you go just that much faster. But it's never going to end. There's some new running shoes that are out there they're talking about. Again, I'm relying on The Economist. Noting that runners are in essence using platform shoes with, I guess, a little bit of spring in them to get that much of an advantage. And, uh, of course, this is great news for Nike, oddly enough, which sells this, what's called the Vaporfly and its successors. I think we should do like the Canyons used to do and you know, run barefoot. What was that South African? Oscar Pistorius. He ran on, like, on, literally on springs. And no one seemed to notice that that might give him a bit of an advantage. I mean, yes, I realize he was handicapped and was missing the lower portion of his extremities, but, but still, Meshmillan points out that there are some special Olympics for cases like that. Anyway, I'm sorry. It's hard for me to care. I hate to rain on your parade if you're a big fan of the Olympics. And if you are a big fan of the Olympics, drop us a line at info at Radio Parallax and give us your side of the story. We'll, 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 we'll read it. And then we have issues in this Olympics of people who are biologically one sex competing, well, biologically male competing as females. And I'm sorry, I have a degree in biology. I don't think gender is a social construct. Yes, it can have social constructs, but it's pretty much hardwired into the organism, and that's, that's all I'm going to say. Except to add that the former Olympic decathlon champion, Bruce Jenner, who's, who's now known as Caitlyn Jenner, is apparently going to run for governor because, I guess, she's famous. As perhaps Arnold Schwarzenegger would have said, well, what else do you need in this case? Yeah, as time goes on, we're going to talk more about the, the recall of, of Governor Gavin Newsom. We are not fans of the governor, but we have to say that apparently what's raised the ire of, of the Trump Republicans who, who want to get rid of him is the fact that he did not handle the COVID epidemic in California the same effective way that Donald Trump did. I mean, really, that's, my understanding is that's their main beef with the governor. And even if it wasn't their main beef, can you think of anything stupider? Well, we might be able to think of some things that are stupider, but perhaps a little bit less incendiary. How about this item from that calendar, which I was quoting on last week's program with little vignettes and anecdotes in it, which seems so amusing. I had to laugh at their commemoration of the birthday of George Berkeley. Yes, the man who Berkeley is named after. He was an Irish-born bishop, philosopher, mathematician, and poet. Perhaps lesser known about him is the fact that he, he, he discovered the supposed life-enhancing nature of tar water, which he believed was instrumental in his recovery from colic. And he considered it a panacea for a broad range of maladies. He published two treatises on the virtue of this elixir, the curative properties of which were embraced by the American medical profession into the 20th century. Why is that not surprising? Yes, I'll grant that I... I, I, I was a medical professional, and I guess I still am, and I guess I always will be till I die. But 
a look back at the history of medicine is is uh, it's shameful. I mean, included in that is the fact that the American medical profession embraced tar water. What is tar water, you ask? Well, we should note that W.C. Sidney declared in England in the 19th century, quote, no remedy was more popular during the second half of the 18th century than tar water. Berkeley had a recipe for it. He outlined it in a letter that was written to attorney John Whitshaw. Quote, put, I think, a gallon of water to a quart of tar, and after stirring it together, let it stand 48 hours, then pour off the clear broth. And drink a glass of about a half pint in the morning, as much as five in the afternoon. It's become common to call for a glass of tar water in a coffee house, as it is for a dish of tea or coffee. Attention, Starbucks. In a 1752 pamphlet, he wrote, It is good not only in fevers, diseases of the lungs, cancers, scrofula, throat disease, apoplexia, and chronic disorders of all kinds, but is also a general drink for infants. Attention, Gerber. My goodness, Tiffany, Junior looks so healthy these days. What's your secret? Oh, he just loves his tar water. Now, I do have to confess, I'm not sure why this was the case, but back in high school days, uh, some guys took on <laughs> chewing of tar, along with chewing of other disgusting substances like tobacco. And I, I confess to having done this back in my youth. I can assure you that it will not replace Trident anytime soon. But for all I know, back in the days before toothpaste and toothbrushes were common, maybe, maybe chewing tar helped, helped clean the teeth. I, I don't know. And if you have any knowledge about that, dear listener, be sure to drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. You will not be required to include dental x-rays. All right, let's go back to some of these little tidbits from this, this calendar, which I'm so enamored with. The June 2nd page described the death of Giuseppe Garibaldi. I guess he died on that date. He was an Italian general, in case you don't know. He was nicknamed the George Washington of Italy, for his helping bring about Italy's unification in March of 1861. Italy had been chopped up by the various powers, France and, you know, Spain, etc., to keep it weak, as, as Germany was kept weak by, you know, hacking it up into pieces for so long. But I was not aware of the fact that Abraham Lincoln actually offered Garibaldi the command of an army unit during America's Civil War. Apparently Garibaldi's autocratic nature and idealism together, prompted him to demand the position of commander of the entire Union Army, and also required Lincoln to free all the slaves as a condition of his service, which caused Lincoln to reconsider and withdraw the offer. I don't know. Could he have been worse than Robert McClellan? I I love to quote from these things. Garibaldi participated in the Young Italy Revolutionary Movement beginning in 1833. He was energetic, but unreliable, and often a loose cannon. In the early 1860s, for example, rumors swirled that he was planning to lead revolutionary forces with Benito Juarez in Mexico, but that did not pan out. He agitated for the liberation of both Rome and Venice from captors, but did not follow up. He was described as not an impressive speaker before educated audiences, but could be inspiring to a less sophisticated crowd. Who does that remind you of? And here's one that Ms. McMillan may know something about, although I'm not sure. I have not queried him on this. But the June 16th edition concerned the birthday of Oscar Gustav, who is also known as the King of Sweden. Sweden's king during World War I and World War II, from 1907 until his death, he was known as the Tennis King. King Gustav V was the oldest and second longest reigning Swedish monarch. 
and the only royal ever inducted into Rhode Island's Tennis Hall of Fame. I was unaware of that. We may need you to research this, how the Swedish king got into the Hall of Fame in Rhode Island. I imagine by playing a lot of tennis. Either that or the way Nero won the gold medal back in the day. (laughs) Well, that's also possible, I suppose. He certainly appeared to have some autocratic tendencies, although he refused to wear a crown, something which the uh, the royalty in Sweden have maintained, a tradition they maintain to this day. But reliable sources, including Sweden's prime minister, also reported that he threatened to abdicate in the summer of 1941 if Hitler was not allowed to transfer the soldiers known as the Engelbrecht Division from Norway to Finland through neutral Sweden, which angered many Swedes. And here's one more I I cannot resist, uh, referring to July 9th as the birthday of Thomas Hobson, 1844 to 1631. And this, yes, this is the Hobson of Hobson's choice. Yes, it's true. Hobson employed a stable of horses for shuttling parcels, letters, and people to and from London. He apparently was a man that wanted to keep his best horses from being overworked by pushy customers. He grew rich from his enterprise despite his standard reply, this or none, to clients who requested a particular horse other than the one Hobson designated. Back in 1712, the London Spectator included an article by Richard Steele that first mentioned the still-heard take-it-or-leave-it option known as Hobson's Choice, saying, when a man came for a horse, he was led into the stable where... There was a great choice, but he was obliged to take the horse which stood next to the stable door so that every customer was alike well-served according to his chance, and every horse ridden with the same justice. And if you think about it, that was a fair way to do it that probably saved a lot of horses from pushy customers. But uh, over the years, Hobson's choice morphed from that original concept and broadened into a meaning to include the sense of dilemma, in which you've got unpalatable choices between meager alternatives, which is not really accurate historically. Ah, but I'm inclined to believe he got a raw deal uh, by posterity on this one. All right, let's see if we can't take a little turn into the good, the bad, and the ugly. For our choices on this, we often, but not not inevitably, rely upon um, the Good Week for Bad Week for items that appear in the Week magazine. But we will do so today out of laziness. And th- in this instance, and in this instance, we will use the current edition of the magazine, which notes that it was a good week this week for the right stuff. After the FAA issued a formal definition of astronaut, which requires not only a trip to space, but quote demonstrated activities during flight that were essential to public safety or contributed to human space flight safety, end quote. So no, a passenger is not an astronaut. Was Alan Shepard an astronaut? I believe he was because he contributed to human space flight safety. Chris, we, we, I think we do have to clarify this a little bit. Uh, before they launched Alan Shepard, they put Ham, a chimpanzee, into orbit. And considering how they had Ham all wired up, I think he clearly demonstrated activities during flight that were essential to public safety. But, well, I guess to be an astronaut, you also have to be a human. Uh, it so happens that Mr. Millen and I were both fortunate enough many years ago to have, to, to be able to sit down to lunch with General Chuck Yeager and <laughs> talk about some of what appeared in Tom Wolfe's The Right Stuff. 
Tom Wolfe pointed out that when the first seven Mercury astronauts were named and hailed as national heroes, because they were basically volunteering to climb inside a space capsule, the test pilots down at Edwards Air Force Base just said with incredulity, did you hear a monkey's going to make the first flight? And being bolted inside of a small spacecraft perched on top of a rocket was described by many as spam in a can. And I will always recall with a bit of fondness uh, recounting to General Yeager how amusing I found it that, you know, Tom Wolfe quoted him as saying, well, yeah, you know, I'd hate to have to sweep the monkey crap out of the capsule before I climbed in, or words to that effect. Anyway, one hell of an interesting man. I'm glad we had a chance to sit down with him. Moving right along, it was a bad week, according to The Week magazine, for Hose, H-O-E-S, after Facebook agreed to appoint a special human moderator to oversee content on a forum for horticulturalists in western New York, after Facebook had repeatedly deleted the word ho for violating its community standards. I can't think of a thing to add to that. And it was surely an ugly week for truth in reporting, with the news that a reference to the Chinese origins of the coronavirus has disappeared from the University of Minnesota's website after a student complaint about, quote, biased language, unquote. Although questions do remain about the virus's origin, there is no dispute that the pandemic began in Wuhan, China. Nevertheless, the words novel coronavirus, parentheses COVID-19, diseases that originated in China, end quote, on an online University of Minnesota health alert have been changed to simply, quote, pandemic, unquote. And, you you know, last September in The Economist magazine, I came across an item that I I think I've made reference to at some point, but I'm not sure. And if I did, I'm going to do it again. The article in The Economist referred to Greece's Navy being in need of a retrofit. To quote from the piece, we gave the Turks a lesson in seamanship, boasted Andreas Stephanopoulos, a reservist in Greece's navy. The jingoistic mood that swept Athens after a collision in the eastern Mediterranean on August 12th of last year, in which a newish Turkish frigate suffered visible damage while a 40-year-old Greek one was apparently unharmed, is yet to fade. A former Greek defense minister declared, Morale in the armed forces is the highest I've ever seen. The navy and air forces are both raring to take on the Turks. Yes, Ms. Ramillan, Greece does have a navy. According to the article, between 1970 and 2020, Greece, you know, that nation that's always in economic trouble, always getting bailed out by the European Union because it does not know how to manage its money, apparently that nation commissioned 30 attack submarines, frigates, and corvettes that are still operational to Turkey's 38. It adds that the Greek fleet is also aging, whereas Turkey is churning out modern warships. Cash-strapped Greece has largely given up on buying high-end French frigates or destroyers, opting for smaller and cheaper British corvettes instead. Boy, you just, you hate to see that, don't you? Anyway, with, with all due respect to my many Greek friends, I do have to point out that, you know, Greece taking on Turkey has in the past not turned out well for the Greeks. It's a, I think, fairly well-known fact that a lot of what constitutes modern Turkey was in ancient times Greek territory. And, of course, the Turkish nation still has a very sizable Greek population. But back in the 1920s, of course, a lot of Greeks were sent packing back to Greece because the Greek army decided to invade Turkey and make it part of a greater Hellenistic empire. This failed rather miserably, causing this correspondent to just, you know, suggest you just, you know, cool it in the Aegean, will you? 
And another item from The Economist, the sort of thing we simply cannot resist on this program, we have this on the origin of watermelon. Noted, The Economist, in its June 5th issue, the origins of some crops are well known. Maize derives from wild grasses grown in the, in the Balsas River Valley of what is now Mexico. Rice descends from another grass native to the Yangtze Basin. Potatoes hail from the border areas between Peru and Bolivia. Apples trace back to the woodlands of southern Kazakhstan. But some crops' beginnings are lost in the mists of time, among them the watermelon. The watermelons, that watermelon's ancestors are African has long been clear. Archaeological evidence from Libya and Egypt suggests that they were cultivated there thousands of years ago. And the continent is home to seven species and numerous subspecies of plants classified in the same genus. That would be citrullus as the cultivated crop. But only now has a likely candidate been nailed down. An examination of available genetic data about members of citrullus published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences has led them to conclude that watermelons were domesticated from a subspecies called Sudanese cordophon melon, which still grows in Darfur in the western part of Sudan. Turns out this is one of the few wild members of Citrullus that is bland rather than excruciatingly bitter to the human palate. And that does tie in with a reinterpretation by two researchers of a 4,400-year-old Egyptian tomb painting, which shows what looks like a watermelon being eaten. The previous assumptions had been that these early cultivated watermelon were too bitter to eat raw and would need to be cooked and sweetened for consumption. The painting, however, appears to show a watermelon being served raw at a table decorated by lotus flowers. So there you have it. I suppose at this point we do have to address this issue that uh, it has been a stereotypical view that that black Americans are, how would you say it, um, fond of watermelon. And I don't know, they probably are. I'm very fond of watermelon. I'm not. And as I say, I think there's something wrong with someone that doesn't like watermelon. I remember being taught as a child how to pick a good watermelon by my grandpa, who used a thumping method, which, which, I, think, which I think works. And now I'm not going to try and describe how it is you do it. You just have to get the right sound out of the watermelon. That's all I'm going to say. But there was an item here that, um, well, we're, we're backing into. Apparently... The manager of an Atlanta Ikea store has had to apologize for serving a special Juneteenth meal, which consisted, when you know it, of fried chicken and watermelon. Management told employees that the special menu was designed to honor the perseverance of black Americans. But unfortunately, 33 black employees then walked out in protest, which left the manager having to say that the menu had been created with the best of intentions. This may mark the only time that we wind up backing into a story that in turn causes us to back into an obituary. But I do think it is fair to note that many aspects of Jewish culture have played prominent roles in American comedy, generally by Jewish comedians. And so it is we must note with sadness the passing of a comedy legend this past week, that of Jackie Mason. Noted his obituary, Jackie Mason turned kvetching into a coarse and often savagely funny art form. In a fast Yiddish-inflected cadence, the stand-up comedian ranted about politics, food, Jewishness, and the indignities of everyday life, including elevator music. I live on the second floor. How much music can I hear by the time I get there? The guy on the 28th floor. Let him pay for it. And yes, it turns out he was ordained as a rabbi before turning to comedy. Noted his obituary, Mason refused to disguise his ethnicity on stage. Hello? 
I find it hard to be told, as I often used to be, that I was too Jewish, he recalled in 2015. This is like saying to a bear, you have too much fur. He was born Yaakov Moshe Maza in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, to immigrants from Belarus, said the New York Times. At age five, he moved with his family to New York City and soon discovered that his path in life had already been determined. Like his father, grandfather, and great-grandfather before him, he was expected that he would become a rabbi. I knew from the time I'm like 12 I had the plot to get out of this, he said. He studied at Yeshiva University and worked summer jobs at resorts in New York's Borscht Belt. Ordained at 25 and in a state of mounting misery, he led a Jewish congregation in Weldon, North Carolina and Latrobe, Pennsylvania, and peppered his sermons with jokes. After his father died in 1959, Mason embraced comedy full-time. Few stars had a more roundabout path to fame, said the Washington Post. An early break got him on the Steve Allen Show in 1961, and he became a regular on variety shows. But during a 1964 appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show, and apparently Ed Sullivan, there was some emergency came along during Mason's taking the stage, and apparently Ed Sullivan held up two fingers, like, you got to get this done in two minutes. Mason responded to the host's two-finger wrap-up gesture with what Sullivan thought was just the middle finger. Ed Sullivan then canceled Mason's six-show contract and booking agents shunned him. I remember so well when this happened. And when you know it, a 1966 Las Vegas gig in which Mason poked fun at the age difference between the newly married Frank Sinatra and Mia Farrow, along the lines of, Frank soaks his dentures and Mia brushes her braces. Shots were fired into his hotel room. But in 1986, a one-man Broadway show became an unexpected phenomenon, said Vanity Fair. That show, The World According to Me, sold out every performance for more than a year and was adapted into an Emmy-winning HBO special. A series of sequels carried him through the next decade and helped him score a recurring guest spot on The Simpsons as the voice of Rabbi Hyman Krostovsky, who was the father of Krusty the Clown. I remember driving through Los Angeles a few years ago and seeing that Jackie Mason was, uh, was I suppose, putting on his one-man show. And I'm sorry to say I did not, uh, I did not go see him, I, and I never will, and it's a darn shame. He was a funny man. Anyway, this might be a, a, a good place to bring the, this segment, and, and I think this program to a close. I don't think anybody's going to object, Mr. Millen, if we just put up, you know, 30-odd minutes versus our usual, you know, close to 60. I might. I see. Well, if they do, they can sue us. Or I guess you can sue me. I don't know. Gladly. All right, then. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. And you, you have been listening to Radio Parallax, which, which, is, which shows, I think, really good judgment on your part. We're hoping to next bring you Burt Ward. Same bat time, same bat channel. That should be fun. We'll see you then. Rockin' Robin, cause we're really gonna rock up tonight. Every little swallow, every chickadee, every little